This is the Taz and Jim Podcast. Now, this is uh, some adult content here, so if you're driving with some young ones, just a warning. The headline is BC tenant evicted. Evicted! After disturbing neighbors by loudly masturbating. By him, loudly by yourself, huh? Several people complained of very loud sex noises coming out of the apartment. Landlord stated the person living ne- next door complained of loud music and, quote, sounds of the tenant masturbating. How do you, how do you know they're alone? Is he going like, yeah. Way to go, I me. like that, me. <laughs> do some more of that to myself. Yeah. I know how I like it. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, I'm a dirty dog. What? Yeah. Um, or they mo- just hear that moaning? cartoonish polishing sound. Moaning and the sound of the tenant's release is what it says oh, in the document Lord. here. <laughs> Goodness. You know what it's like, Jim. When, uh, when no one's home, you can have the volume up on the laptop full blast. You can make whatever noises you want. <laughs> well, apparently it depends on how thin your walls are, if you can. <laughs> The new neighbor uh, moved in October 1st, said that she heard uh, loud masturbation sounds between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. daily. Oh, my goodness. Over Possibly the, the next month. Hear that. Yeah, that's like your alarm clock. <laughs> Perfect timing for us. 4.30 on the dot. 100% of the morning since she moved in, she says she heard the noises. So this must be part of this person's getting caught or having people here. It must be a voyeuristic type thing, I think, right? She added that the man groans all the way until the end. (laughs) Maybe he's doing (laughs) yoga, morning yoga. Uh, It is a type of yoga, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Tenant tried to say the two neighbors lacked credibility since they're the only ones in the building who brought it up. But uh, they brought it up separately of each other, so it was it was deemed that yes, this guy had to go. So he got evicted for loudly masturbating. Wow! Hopefully, he's found a nice house in the country somewhere. <laughs> we uh, are observing Remembrance Day today, of course, and we're fortunate enough to have a veteran joining us on the show. Uh, Corporal Oscar Trackman is with us. And Jim, he's going to be part of the event in London that you're uh, you're hosting later today, correct? Yes, at Remembrance Gardens, which is by uh, River Road and Veterans Memorial Parkway. Corporal Trackman retired in 2019 from the 4th Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment after 25 years of distinguished service in the infantry, training hundreds of troops and participating in exercises around the world. He deployed multiple times... Uh, to Bosnia in 1998 as a machine gunner, then to Afghanistan in 2006 again. In 2008 as a convoy escort, uh, he had some other roles in there too. His career ended on a high note. 2018, he was selected for the prestigious assignment to the Queen's Guard at Buckingham Palace and served the Tower of London as Corporal of the Guard. Corporal Trackman, thanks for coming on the air with us. That's pretty cool, eh, that you got to do the Buckingham Palace stuff to kind of wrap things up. Yeah, it, it was actually a great experience. Uh, the stuff I got to see behind the scenes and just the rooms that the public aren't allowed into were uh, were fantastic as well. How many times did you meet the Queen? 
Uh, I saw her drive by once. I never actually met her. Oh, Just come saw the on. white glove out the window. <laughs> it's not like a staff party, Christmas party or anything? <laughs> no, no. I, I don't think uh, that we're quite invited to those things. I don't think I'm uh, high enough ranking for that. Mm. Well, talk about your time serving in the military. Um, you, you were in Bosnia. You were in Afghanistan. What do we back at home not realize about uh, the experiences that our military have over there? I don't think people realize that when we go overseas, it's uh, it's not just a job. It's it's really twenty four seven. Like when you're there, I mean, just because you're not on shift doesn't mean your your body and your mind aren't switched on. So you're essentially there for seven months, twenty four seven working, uh, no breaks. You're 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 just exhausted. You're tired, and and a lot of us, like myself included, when we come back, come back to to regular jobs. I was reservist when I went, and. Um, came back and uh, and went back to work and other jobs I lost because I went overseas and then other ones you come back to again. Is it tough to adjust when you come home from deployment? Uh, yeah, the adjustment is uh, is a steep curve, I'd say. Uh, there's You're not really sure what to do with, I think, a lot of your time and you, you've always had a job or always something to do or always something to look for while you're overseas and, yeah. and in Canada you... You literally can just sit and relax. So it's, right. Uh, well, like you say, you, you never shut it off when you're deployed, and then you probably have to learn how to shut it off when you get home. Absolutely, and, and a lot of guys never do. What inspired you to join the Army uh, to begin with? Uh, in all honesty, it was always something I was interested in. Uh, ever since I was a kid, uh, it, was, it was almost like a calling to me. And uh, long story short, I applied to a job at Fast Eddie's in high school, and I didn't get it because I couldn't spell mayonnaise. So I decided to join. <laughs> and for people listening, if you're not from London, there's a there's a fast food joint called Fast Eddie's. It's a drive through, like old style drive through burger place. So the, on on the on the application, you had to correctly spell mayonnaise, correct, to get the job, and you spelt it incorrectly. So you went and joined the military. Instead. Well, I was, I, my plan was to join, you know, either for college, after college, university. But then I thought, you know, well. Why not join now? Because my bus drove past the the base all the time. They were recruiting for part-time soldiers, reservists to do their basic training on weekends and evenings. So I, I joined in grade 11 instead of after college. What would you say the biggest thing that you learned from being in the military was? Personally, uh, it sounds weird, but love. Because I truly, genuinely have a, a love for, for all the people I served with. And and I continue to reach out to them uh, like on a weekly basis, talk to them if anybody struggles or or has problems, and if if they need a favor, I'm there for them. So I I truly truly from the bottom of my heart love all my troops, men, women, the cross section of society that I've dealt with. Well, we uh, we love and respect uh, all our military. What uh, what you guys have done. You know, I, I always say it, it's it's not something that everyone has in them. So we're glad that you and, and those you served with do have it inside you. Uh, Corporal Trackman, thank you for everything you've done for our country, man. All right, thanks for having me on the air. I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock, cock, you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock. I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock. Hey, it's time for sports with Devin Peacock, our sports guy from Global News Radio. Dev, you're taking issue here with baseball teams losing on purpose. It's not me that's doing this. It's Scott Boris. Uh, Scott Boris is the most influential agent in the Major League Baseball. Every year at the uh, uh, team meetings in Florida or 
Arizona. He holds uh, court with uh, the media. And this year, his ire was directed at teams that tank, teams that trade away veterans at the uh, deadline. He thinks it's a cancer uh, affecting the sport. And I take issue with Scott Boris having that opinion because what Major League Baseball teams are doing is the exact same thing he does with his agents. They are looking out for the absolute best option for themselves. Why should you, as a team that is struggling, just keep on keeping on just for the sake of it? Why not try to get a uh, better draft pick so you can get an impact player? Because if you are the Milwaukee Brewers of the world, if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates of the world, you know, you name the team the Cincinnati Reds, you're not going to get the big-name free agent because of the Scott Borises of the world who priced them out of your price range. You have to find alternate means of getting those players. So I don't blame teams for tanking, and I think they should keep on doing that on, doing what they're doing because that is how uh, you win a championship. Yeah, this guy was calling out the Braves, saying the reason the Braves won the World Series is because they tanked on purpose. Yeah, the Atlanta Braves were struggling throughout most of the season. And then at the deadline, they added a bunch of guys and they ended up winning the World Series. Great for the Atlanta Braves. You've had the previous champions, uh, the Chicago Cubs, the Houston Astros, who tanked big time to get big draft picks, some of whom are uh, Scott Boris clients. It's funny how sometimes, if you're a parent, sometimes the kids who are most like you upset you the most. It's like because they do the things you did when you were a kid. It's like you, yeah, because you hate yourself, kind of. Yeah, you get you get kind of annoyed by yourself, and so I think that's what's happening here. Scott Boris is annoyed because there's a bunch of teams in Major League Baseball that act and think just like him. Remembrance Day, and we are fortunate to be talking with Ted Barris. He is an author and a journalist. He's written some great books like Juno, Canadians at D-Day, Victory at Vimy, Behind the Glory, Canada's role in the Allied Air War. The list goes on and on. He has spoken with hundreds of veterans over his career, and he's he's gotten their stories documented, which is important because, especially with the, the World War II veterans, there isn't many uh, veterans left of, from those wars. No, the I think the last number I saw was fewer than 5,000 Second World War veterans. Now, that sounds like a lot of people left, but when you consider we had a million people in uniform uh, during the Second World War for a population of whatever it was, eight or ten, eight or ten million. That's not bad, and 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 but the numbers are dwindling, and and what what you are conscious of because you call me and you take the time uh, this week every year, uh, and what I try to do is to is to gather the stories that make their faces more than just. Um, you know, tombstones and uh, aging, faded photographs, but real people. I mean, I don't think I have to tell the people of London about Charlie Fox. Charlie was um, a Spitfire pilot. Before that, he was an instructor in the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. He was he was like a second father to me because he inspired me to take the time to sit with veterans, in his case, Air Force guys, who taught... Uh, all the Air Force, the Allied Air Forces, uh, how to fly. He was a, an instructor, and and um, 
and had that gift. I don't talk about this very often, Taz, but the the, the one thing that that these men had as instructors of air crew, and they they trained a quarter of a million men in this country between 1939 and 1945. A quarter of a million men from all of the Commonwealth countries: New Zealand, Australia, Rhodesia, South Africa, Britain. Six thousand Americans joined before Pearl Harbor, and Charlie Fox was able, like they all were, was able to allow a student in the air a student pilot, to make a mistake, not jump in and, and take tear away the, 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 the uh, uh, controls from the student, but allow him to learn how to recover, mm. to recover from a mistake. I don't the know airport. if I'd like that. I'd be like, Charlie, uh, uh, please take the take the stick. I don't know yeah, what I'm doing There was here. a few times my driver's training instructor had to hit that brake on her side. <laughs> well, you know, because she panicked and didn't know whether you knew how to recover. But that's what, there's where the learning came from. And Charlie found that fine line, as they all did, or some who didn't were killed. But they all did, allowing the wisdom of that moment to be ingrained in their brain and in their muscle memory of their bodies to be able to recover. And that was the gem that these instructors uh, gave the plan. And then he went overseas and got two DFCs to boot. I mean, he yeah. shot... He shot up Rommel in the middle of a, uh, just right after, the, after D-Day and, and got no credit for it for 50 years. I mean, these guys are incredible, men and women, are incredible persons, personalities. And remember, guys, they volunteered for this. Yeah. Nobody said, you got to go. It says here in the fine print, you're a Canadian citizen, you got to go. Uh-uh. They did it voluntarily. And they didn't have snappy salutes and they didn't have well-pressed pants. But Canadians were task-oriented. They knew how to get the job done. And that's why they were so valuable. I think a lot of this would be learning as you go because you volunteer. They didn't know exactly what was in store for them when they got across the world. And it's got to be a lot of improvisation and a lot of learning while your life is on the line. I couldn't have put it better, and you're so right. Remember we talked uh, a couple of years ago about my book, Rush to Danger. One of the things that I learned about my father's story in the writing of that book, he was a medic in the American Army. And he, he joined up because his draft notice came up in 1942, and he went down to the New York office because he was an American. He went to the New York draft office and said, you know, put me where you need me. And they said, we need medics. Fine. And he, and he became a medic. He went to Kansas a place he referred to as the middle of nowhere. And he learned to be a medic by getting anatomy training and first aid. That was it. Wow. And then they shipped him off to Europe. And you know where he learned how to become a medic? In the middle of the Battle of the Bulge. On Jeez. one day, in, I, the records in, in Georgia revealed this to me when I did the research on his medical battalion. One day, February the 25th or something like that, 1945, in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge, his medical battalion, a unit of about maybe 25 guys, they processed 119 wounded men in 12 hours. Uh. This is in, in a, at a first aid post in the middle of winter in German territory. It's freezing outside. This isn't a general hospital around the corner. This is an amazing moment. And, and this is where the, the rubber hit the road and all those other cliches. That's when he learned how to become a medic, when he, had, when he faced the wounds. And they weren't bruises and bumps. These guys had lost limbs and were gashed by shrapnel, and they had to really improvise to save lives. And, and that's why they were so extraordinary, Canadians and others who stepped up. True trial by fire. Yeah, absolutely. Talking to Ted Barris, he has written a bunch of books about Canada's military heritage, and it's great to have him on today.
A lot of times when people hear Remembrance Day, they instantly go back to World War One and World War Two. Uh, you have focused with your writing on those wars, of course, but also some of the more modern conflicts where these veterans are part of our community. They are back here living their lives and they are dealing with some some memories that are not always the easiest to deal with. Oh, you're so right. And, and, and you know, um, if I had a, another 70 years to live, uh, in addition to the 72 I've had so far, I probably still couldn't interview all the young men and women who served in Rwanda, Somalia, Bosnia, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. One of my neighbors in the town where I live in Uxbridge, northeast of Toronto, a young man named Jeff Peck, um, he was a platoon uh, lieutenant in Afghanistan, and he was there at the Friendly Fire incident in 2001. Wow. This is where the Americans mistakenly dropped the 500-pound laser-guided bomb on the Canadians' training um, near a place called Tarnak Farms. And Jeff, I interviewed Jeff quite extensively when he came back because his dad was our um, local fire chief, volunteer fire chief. And so, and Jeff went to school with my daughters. Uh, so as a young man, not not an old man such as I got used to interviewing veterans in their 70s and 80s and 90s, Jeff was in his 20s when he reflected on that moment of the destruction of, of three of his, four of his mates and the, and the wounding of others. And I asked him, I said, you know, we, we talked many, many times. And I asked him about when it struck him about how, how uh, if, he, if, he, if he suffered post-traumatic stress. He said, yeah, a few years later, he was in charge of taking one of the bodies with one of the families from Trenton along the Highway of Heroes to Toronto so that the coroner could pass the body on to the family, that, that famous ride mm. under the bridges and so on. And he said he was assigned the job of being there for a, a Captain Dawes uh, when he was killed over in Afghanistan. And he was sitting in the, in the limousine with the family, and, and the family went from the depths of depression and weeping and sobbing to the heights of exhilaration when they saw the people on the bridges waving flags and... Mm paying tribute to their son, and so on. And Jeff realized then that it was he who could have been in the box, not Captain Dawes. And I spoke to Jeff. I, I, was, I wrote a piece for Zoomer magazine uh, last month, and I wanted to talk to Jeff about the loss of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And I said, you know, you were there. You served. You saw your buddies killed there. What does this mean to you? And I said, it must be tragic. It must be horrific. He said, well, yeah, but... You know what we did there? He said, we planted seeds. We gave girls the chance to go to school. We gave some communities hope. And even though it looks horrible, I'm paraphrasing, even though it looks horrible now, those seeds someday will grow. I'm, I'm sure of it, he said, and I'm proud of what we did. And that feeling sustains me. He said, someday those seeds will return and what we gave up in Afghanistan will be paid off. You got me, Ted. Oh, isn't that amazing? It's incredible, and uh, the books you write very important. Very, uh, your your work over the years is, is something that future generations should be taught in school because these stories that you've been able to capture and share just awesome. 
Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure. I'm honored that you had me on your show. Uh, it's great to be able to share some of the, the memories of the times I've, I've had with veterans and, and to help people, people who want to know what we're supposed to remember. Maybe this will help. Right now, I've got to get this off my chest because it's been bugging me since I read the headline. They're planning to remake one of my all-time favorite movies. This is a movie, if it comes on the television set, you got to watch it till the end. Tell me you've seen Roadhouse, Jim. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, man. <laughs> it is the best. Be nice. Come on. If somebody gets in your face, I want you to be nice. Okay. Ask him to walk. Be nice. If you won't walk, walk him. But be nice. If you can't walk him, one of the others will help you, and you'll both be nice. <laughs> I want you to remember that it's a job. It's nothing personal. Uh-huh. I wonder if somebody calls my mama. <laughs> Is she? <laughs> I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. Classic w- advice. Words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say you watch it every time it was on TV. It was on TV every weekend Always. on Peachtree TV or whatever it was before, TBS. Yeah. Like, all the time. It, it, it is one of those movies that is so bad, it's good. Mm-hmm. You can't replace Patrick Swayze. No. The guy takes the role. like He is acting his face off in Roadhouse. <laughs> He is treating it like it is going to win him the Academy Award. He's treating it like it's Hamlet. And then he goes and rips some throats. Oh, yeah, the throat rips. <laughs> See, what are they What are they thinking remake? Like, it's only good because it's bad. You know, yeah. so to, you can't recapture it's that It's good essence. because it's bad, but while they were making it, they thought it was good. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the idea is great or that it's got legs and we need to explore these characters further. No, it was fun to watch because it was so ridiculous. A bunch of bouncers in a roadhouse and Jeff Healy playing in the corner. Yeah. Rest his soul. He's not around. He can't be involved in a sequel. Swayze's gone. Mm-hmm. The big roadhouse in the sky. Sam Elliott, who was uh, Dalton's mentor, he's still around, but he's probably too old to reprise his role. You can't roundhouse anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> Ow, my hips. <laughs> They're saying that uh, taking over for Swayze, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, I like Jake Gyllenhaal, but not in this role. <laughs> you can't capture lightning in a, in a bottle again. Mm-hmm. You can't make a so bad it's good movie on purpose. Roadhouse is a film that should never be remade. A little mouse in in my living room the other day, and I've been setting the traps. I hadn't seen anything after the original appearance of, of the little mouse disappeared. Hadn't seen him since, but. I woke up before work and my wife had sent me a text message on my phone. So she was awake, I was asleep, and apparently she saw the little guy. Uh-oh. This is the text message I got. So I trapped the mouse downstairs by Amelia's play kitchen. It's covered with a green bin with another heavy bin on top of it. At a girl? I also slid a trap under there, so hopefully... It'll get hungry for some peanut butter. 
Can you see if you can get the mouse out with some sort of flat board, cardboard, etc., slide it underneath and then take it outside? Thank you so much, my love. I can do that when I get home. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, has, early this morning. it has not been done. If you're listening, honey, thank you. That is incredible that you were able to catch that thing. Amazing. Yeah. But, uh, but it's still under there. Hmm. I, I did not... <laughs> I didn't have time this morning to take care of it, so don't lift up the bin. You're going to get back, and there's going to be a mouse-sized hole gnawed into the side of that container whatever's over top of it. (laughs) Or just into the floor. Yeah, gone forever. (laughs) There it goes. So I think, I don't know, is this the same mouse? Hopefully. Hopefully it was just one. I also went to the store, and I bought some big gap filler, Jim. Yeah? Because we we have an area outside that I think needs to be filled up, uh, that's got to be the point where the mouse got in. So mm. I'm going to do that today as well with the big gap filler. Nice. Found that in the Yo Mama aisle at the hardware store. Oh, snap! I want to see you peacock, cock, cock, you peacock, cock, you peacock, cock, cock, It's peacock, time for sports with Taz and Jim. Peacock, Devin Peacock is with us from peacock, Global News Radio. Dev Odell Beckham Jr., he wanted out of Cleveland. Didn't want to play for the Browns anymore. His wish came true. Now the big question is, where is he going to go? Yeah, it's looking like he's down to uh, three teams that he is choosing from. He apparently um, had an opportunity to go to Seattle. Russell Wilson wanted him in Seattle, but that is not really an option. They are not on his list. The list is the Packers, the Chiefs, and the Saints. Three very good teams. I mean, when you look at those three teams, though, uh, you see, like the Chiefs, they just added Josh Gordon. Is there enough football to go around with Gordon, with uh, Hardman, with Tariq Hill, with Kelsey, and everyone else? I don't know if you add Odell Beckham Jr. to that. Uh, there's enough football to go around. Uh, you look at the Saints, they just lost uh, uh, Jameis Winston for the rest of the year. Do they have a quarterback that he is going to like? That kind of leaves the Green Bay Packers. So if I were going to pick anyone, I would say the Green Bay Packers as the likely landing spot for him. I was kind of thinking he fit for the Detroit Lions. They are 0-8, of course. They are the exact opposite of all three of those teams. But if you're looking to reestablish value, how better than the Detroit Lions, who need to add some offense, would make him a featured part of the team? You go, you make your golf look good, he makes you look good, and you sign a big contract in the offseason. Unfortunately for the Detroit Lions and their fans, uh, they do not have the cap space to add him. They have uh, managed Okay, do you, do you really think, I understand your strategy, but do you really think Beckham would ever consider going from the Browns to the Lions? <laughs> I, I know it does sound crazy, but when you look at the NBA, whenever uh, they have the uh, trade deadline pass, there's players who are cut, and players do one of two things. They either go to a contender to try and win a title, or they go to a team that is bad, that is going to play them so they can get the ball a lot. You don't go to the team in the middle. You don't go to, you know, the 4-4 four and four team. You go great or you go terrible, and the Detroit Lions are terrible. You think Odell Beckham Jr., though, most likely will end up with the Green Bay Packers? Based on the offense as it currently is situated, if you want to get some, some passes and some touchdowns and some scores, 
I would go to the Green Bay Packers because the Chiefs are just too loaded to get him the ball enough. Thank you very much for checking out the Taz and Jim podcast. If you want to listen to us the old-fashioned way, live on the radio, you can do that on FM 96 in London or Y108 in Hamilton weekday mornings from 5.30 until 9.30. Or subscribe, keep downloading the podcasts, and we'll keep talking. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.